Hello and welcome to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Ludwig Lin. Today I will be speaking with Dr. Palash Kar about the article Liberal Glycemic Control in Critically Ill Patients with Type 2 Diabetes, an exploratory study published in Critical Care Medicine. Dr. Carr is a senior registrar in intensive care at Royal Adelaide Hospital in South Australia. In this open-label study, a critical care center in Adelaide, Australia, used two different goals for maintaining plasma glucose levels in critically ill patients. One is with standard care glucose goals, and the other is with liberal glucose goals. And I am going to, uh, first of all, thank Dr. Carr for joining us. Um, I am based in California, so this is a uh, trans Pacific call, I suppose. So I really appreciate him making the time to do this. And I would like Dr. Carr to uh, start off by uh, talking to us about his group's motivations in doing the study and and any background involved in that and to uh, give us a brief summary of the methodology and the study design. Dr. Carr? Sure. Hi, Dr. Lin, and thank you for uh, giving me the opportunity to be a guest on your podcast. We decided to do this study looking at a prospective open-label sequential period pilot study of two groups of patients uh, with type 2 diabetes and evidence of chronic hyperglycemia. And it basically was based on numerous aspects of data that had been previously published. Our own group collected some data of a 1,000 consecutive patients admitted to our intensive care unit. Uh, In 2014, a paper was published in in ICM by uh, Mark Plummer and he found that 17% of admitted patients into our ICU suffered type 2 diabetes and 13% suffered chronic hyperglycemia as indicated by an elevated glycohemoglobin of greater than or equal to 7%. Uh, extrapolating this data, we thought that about 17,000 people would be admitted Australia-wide to intensive care units um, each year with type 2 diabetes and chronic hyperglycemia. Moving on from this... The American Diabetes Association's uh, Standards of Medical Care in Diabetes in 2017 actually goes on to discuss the treatment of diabetes in hospital. And they suggest that insulin is started if blood sugar levels are greater than 180 milligrams per deciliter or 10 millimoles per liter. Uh, And to target a range between 140 and 180 milligrams per deciliter or 7.8 to 10 millimoles per liter in most critically ill patients. Interestingly, the recommendation does not actually discriminate between patients with and without diabetes. And our thought is whether or not this actually should occur. Moving on from that, uh, there is some observational data by Morataki Eggy, who came to Australia and did a few papers with a uh, Ronaldo Baloma here in Melbourne. And he published some data in 2006, uh, an observational, a retrospective observational study, and he showed that looked at mean blood glucose concentrations versus mortality in the intensive care unit. And he actually found that there was an association between patients who had diabetes and they ended up having uh, increased mortality with low blood glucose levels. Uh, However, this was lost with high blood glucose levels. And when you compare this to a group of patients without diabetes, they had a U-shaped curve where they showed harm with low and high blood glucose levels. Moving on from that, he published another paper in 2011 in Critical Care Medicine, another retrospective observational study, and it was a great bit of work, actually, and he actually found that patients 
with pre-admission glycated hemoglobins of greater than 7%, actually had lower mortalities when their time-weighted mean glucose was greater than 10 millimoles per litre or 180 milligrams per deciliter. So there was actually some data out there which suggested that patients with diabetes may actually do better if their blood glucose levels are kept slightly elevated. Compounding all this uh, was the paper or two papers that came out of Leuven from Vandenberg's group in 2001 and 2006 where they looked at surgical and medical ICU patients and tight glucose control. Now, in 2006, uh, they did a pooled analysis of both papers published in the New England Journal of Medicine, and there's actually a graph in the 2006 paper looking at the cumulative hazard in patients with diabetes versus patients without diabetes. And admittedly, the group with diabetes is quite a small group, so 190 patients in that group. And they actually found that although it was not statistically significant, patients with diabetes appeared to do possibly did worse with tighter control. So as I said, it wasn't statistically significant, but it looked as if there was a signal there. And this is completely opposite to what they found in their patients without diabetes, where they had patients without diabetes in ICU for greater than or equal to three days. There was 1,200 patients in that group, and they found, obviously, that these people had a reduction in cumulative hazard for in-hospital mortality with tighter glucose control. So as I said, that signal was flipped in patients with diabetes. So that got us thinking about why this is the case. Potentially, I guess, there's the concept of relative hypoglycemia. And that sort of describes that if I'm sitting at home suffering from type 2 diabetes and my normal blood glucose level at home is around 250, 280 milligrams per deciliter, and I end up in the ICU, should my blood glucose range in the intensive care unit be driven down towards the 100 to 180 mark milligram per deciliter or not. Um, so yeah, that, that essentially was the background to our study. Additionally, there is some good evidence suggesting that hypoglycemia increases the risk of death in patients both with and without diabetes. And this was evidenced by a follow-up study published in the New England Journal of Medicine 2012 by the Nice Sugar Study Investigators. And they looked at moderate and severe hypoglycemia, which showed an increased risk of death in those with and without diabetes. And also uh, another paper published by Morotaki Egi uh, in 2006 in anesthesiology showed that glycemic variability was associated with increased mortality. So all the data that I've spoken about suggests that patients with type 2 diabetes and chronic hypoglycemia may actually suffer harm from hypoglycemia and glycemic variability and there possibly might be some benefit from higher blood glucose targets in the ICU. Uh, and I think that may be down to the concept of relative hypoglycemia, as I suggested. So ultimately, uh, we wanted I wanted to know whether liberal glucose targets in the ICU in patients with type 2 diabetes and chronic hypoglycemia showed any benefit at all. And I guess what's important to stress is that this is a single-centre pilot study. It's not powered to find differences in clinical outcomes. What we were looking at primarily is whether slightly more liberal glucose targets in these patients would attenuate hypoglycemia, which we know is associated with morbidity and mortality, uh, attenuate glycemic variability, which again we know is associated with morbidity, and whether or not it's actually safe to do. So, so we went, went ahead and designed a prospective open-label sequential period pilot study and compared two groups of patients with diabetes and chronic hypoglycemia. And we had one group with standard control, 
between 6 and 10 millimoles per litre or 106 to 180 milligrams per deciliter. And the second group was the liberal group. And they, and they were targeted between 10 and 14 millimoles per litre or 180 to 252 milligrams per deciliter. And what we did is we recruited patients who were older than 18 who were in our ICU with type 2 diabetes and had a glycated hemoglobin of greater than 7% on mission. And they were recruited over a seven-month period between August 2012 to February 2013 into the standard arm. And we started insulin if their blood glucose went above 180 milligrams per deciliter. Subsequent to that, we had a one-month washout period where patients weren't recruited, and then we had a six- to seven-month period for the liberal group where patients who were admitted who were 18 with type 2 diabetes and chronic hypoglycemia were then included into a, a liberal group. And insulin was started when their blood glucose levels went above 252 milligrams per deciliter. So we weren't giving people glucose to hit the target range Rather, insulin was started if they went outside the target range to bring them back into that range. And we collected data on blood glucose concentrations. We looked at hypoglycemia. We defined hypoglycemia as moderate and severe as per the NICE sugar trial published in the New England Journal of Medicine in 2012. And they suggested that severe hypoglycemia was less than 2.2 millimoles per litre or less than 40 milligrams per deciliter, uh, moderate hypoglycemia as 2.3 to 3.9 millimoles per litre, or 41 to 70 milligrams per deciliter. And we also suggested that maybe there's this notion of relative or mild hypoglycemia, where the blood glucose is between 4 to 6 millimoles per litre, and that's between 70 to 108 milligrams per deciliter. Additionally, we measured time-weighted mean glucose as an indicator of approximation of blood glucose during the ICU stay, and I looked at glycemic variability uh, via the sta uh, standard deviation of glucose and the coefficient of variation, which I can go into shortly. On top of that, as I suggested, this study was never designed or powered to look at outcomes in clinical measures. So we also sent off some bloods, look at some biomarkers. We looked at highly specific CRP, interleukin-6, 1,5-hydroglucotol, and isoprostanes, and just looking at things like short-term glycemic control, uh, risk of cardiovascular disease, inflammatory myokines, and mediators of oxidative stress as potential to see whether or not there might be some harm there. Additionally, we also looked at other patient outcomes such as mortality, length of stay, uh, ventilator-free days, uh, PF ratios, lactate, and as I suggested, the study was never powered for these, but we collected data on that anyway, and uh, yeah, just to see whether or not there was any sense, any signal of harm at all. And so that's essentially the background design of the study. Right. I think that was a really nice way to summarize the thinking behind the design and um, the way you guys intended the um, study to progress. Let me ask you before we start talking about the study and the results, uh, more about these biomarkers. What prompted you to look at the, the four that you did, IL-6, the uh, CRP, the glucose turnover uh, parameter of the 1,5-anhydroglucetol and the uh, plasma isoprostanes. What were your potential goals in looking at those? I mean, I know that the likelihood of seeing a difference was probably pretty small given the small sample size, but, you know, what was your intent and had there been previous instances of people looking at those and its effects on clinical outcome? Yeah, well, we were fortunate enough to collaborate on this paper with an expert in diabetes, Alicia Jenkins, and she works in Sydney here in Australia. And in discussion with her, 
we recommended these for uh, biomarkers as a broad indicator of some of the possible harm that we're looking for. So the highly specific CRP possibly gives us uh, individual risk for cardiovascular disease, heart attacks and strokes. The interleukin-6, a pro-inflammatory cytokine uh, and an anti-inflammatory myokine. The isoprostanes, a marker and mediator of oxidative stress. And the 1,5-anhydroglucotol is a validated marker of short-term glycemic control, and that looks at glycemic variability. So I myself am not an expert in the field in these, but uh, Professor Jenkins is. And um, as I said, we're fortunate enough to collaborate with her, and she gave us some some advice on, on some of the biomarkers to test for. Uh, I guess one of the one of the limitations of these sort of studies is that we are a fairly small hospital, and it's very difficult to get funding to look for, say, twenty or thirty different biomarkers and get funding to do a study of four or five hundred patients. So essentially, we had to pick and choose some of the biomarkers. We had to pick and choose a number of patients to include in the pilot study. And which is a limitation of all small studies, I guess, single centre small studies. Um, bearing in mind, we're just looking for a signal of harm, and, and there was no signal of harm between both groups of patients with the biomarkers. Mm-hmm. Well, let me ask you just a little bit more about that. So, the signal of harm, for example, with the oxidative stress one, the plasma isoprostanes, yep. is the thinking that a higher level of oxidative stress would be harmful, and that that is something that should have been seen with hyperglycemia rather than hyperglycemia, or or, or is it actually the opposite? Yeah, I guess we were looking for, I will admit, there are limitations to using the biomarkers. So admittedly, you know, we had far fewer patients having bloods collected for biomarkers at day seven compared to day zero. Um, As patients left the unit, they obviously improved and left the unit or potentially died and left the unit. And so the numbers are fairly skewed towards uh, higher numbers of patients with biomarkers towards the beginning of the study period or or beginning of their stay in ICU, I I should clarify. So with all these biomarkers, essentially, we were looking at differences between the groups. So elevated levels would give us an indicator that potentially some some more oxidative stress was present. I guess, interestingly, is that there was no difference between any of the biomarkers between the groups. And that, I guess, is comforting to know that within the limitations of looking at these biomarkers and the study itself, that when looking at these two groups of patients um, who are admitted to the ICU with glycatohemoglobin that are elevated in type 2 diabetes, when looking between standard control and liberal blood glucose control, that specifically with these four biomarkers, there appears to be no difference in things like oxidative stress and, yeah, the biomarkers themselves. Right, right, with the inflammation markers. Okay. Yeah. Okay, so let's get back to some of the... Uh sort of like uh, fundamental variables that you were looking at in the study. So, for example, the glycemic variability. I was yes. curious, how, how do you measure that? And uh, what, what are some of the known data uh, in the literature about its influence on outcome? Yeah, so glycemic variability is interesting in that, you know, it's looking at the, as, as, as it says, the, the variability of, of the glucose in, in patients there's no standard measure for it. There's a number of ways to measure it, and we chose to measure it via a coefficient of variation, and that's looking at the standard deviation of, of the glucose over the mean of the glucose times 100. So that gives us a, a percentage indicator. And the reason being is because it's a very easy thing to calculate. It's reproducible, and it has been validated. So interestingly, 
There are a number of other methods to measure glycemic variability. I mean, some people use just standard deviation of glucose itself. I think that gives us an indication of dispersion more than glycemic variability, but it's something that can be done. But yeah, so essentially we were looking at glucose variability and, and its predictor of, of harm. Previous data, and I was talking about Eggie's paper in 2006, showed an association between glycemic variability and increased mortality. I actually published a review on patients with diabetes and personalised therapy in the World Journal of Diabetes a couple of years ago, and that discusses the fact that patients with increased glycemic variability do do worse. So, you know, going from low blood glucose to high blood glucose constantly during their ICU stay, our patients do worse. And I guess you're more at risk of that happening if you do suffer from diabetes. So, um, yeah, I chose the simplest measure of glycemic variability. As I said, it was the standard deviation over the mean times 100, uh, which again is reproducible. We didn't have to, I didn't have to pay for any specialized computer programs. And there are a bunch of other methods to measure glycemic variability. I think and that in itself means that there is no gold standard to measure it, which I guess is, is one of its weaknesses. But there is evidence to show that uh, increased glycemic variability is associated with, with poor outcomes. Right. Well, I think, you know, the interesting point that um, is maybe not implied by you, but that I'm thinking about when you're describing the different ways of calculating it and high tech high cost versus low cost is we, we need to also talk about the scalability of these various measurements. Um, if, if this is a worthy variable for clinicians to be thinking about, not all hospitals have a sky-high budget, you know? So if this yeah. works and is easy calculated, I, I support that. Let's talk about some of the results of your study. Um, what are the main findings of your study that you really want to um, get across to our listeners? Yeah, so I guess... Uh, I can let you know that, importantly, with respect to glycemia, we looked at time-weighted blood glucose and we achieved treatment separation. So the standard arm, the mean glucose over the seven days that patients were studied, the mean was 9.3 millimoles per litre, and the liberal arm was 10.3. So so that they were within the target ranges that we were after. So, And that was statistically significant with a p-value of 0.02. So that that means we achieved treatment separation between the groups. Given it was such a small study, I grouped both the severe hypoglycemia events and the moderate hypoglycemia events, patients that suffered that in the standard liberal group together, and there was a trend towards uh, a reduction in moderate to severe hypoglycemia, single episodes, in the liberal group versus the standard group. And I guess that makes sense because... Um, if, you, if you're aiming for higher blood glucose targets, then I guess you'd intuitively think you'd have less chance of having severe to moderate or moderate to severe hypoglycemic episodes. Well, it's good so, to know that that's what your patients demonstrated. Yeah. 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 So, so we had about 35% of patients in the standard arm have at least one episode of either moderate or severe hypoglycemia and about 15% in the liberal arm, and that was a p-value of 0.07. When moving on to recurrent episodes of moderate severe, so patients who suffered more than one episode of moderate severe hypoglycemia, uh, we had about 19% of patients in the standard arm and the liberal arm about 3%, and that was statistically significant with a p-value of 0.05. And moving on, mild hyper or, or relative hypoglycemia episode, again, this is a blood glucose 
between 72 and 108 milligrams per deciliter. Statistically significant in patients in the liberal group had a lower percentage having a single episode and recurrent episodes. And then again, looking at glycemic variability, the patients in the liberal group had a lower coefficient of variation when compared to the standard group, which suggests a reduction in glycemic variability. And this was statistically significant of a p-value less than 0.01. And then moving on from there, I looked at some other clinical outcomes such as mortality. There was no difference between the groups. The biomarkers, which I've already mentioned, there was no difference between the groups in, in all four biomarkers. And other outcome data, such as ventilator-free days to day 28, insulin use, inotrope use, lactate, and PF ratio, there was no difference between the groups. Bearing in mind that this small pilot study was not powered to look for differences in these clinical outcomes. Um, but, you know, it was interesting to collect that data anyway and analyze the data to see if there was any signal present. Right. I think it definitely is a very thought-provoking um, study about whether we should treat different patients via different patient protocols. I think we are all driving toward you know, particular care protocols to standardize our care, but I think you're pointing out that maybe we should not treat all patients similarly. Is that, would you say that's correct? Yeah, I think the interesting thing about the standards of medical care published by the American Diabetes Association is that there is no differentiation in the patients in hospital uh, between the patients with and without diabetes. So I feel personally that personalised therapy is on the horizon for patients with diabetes. A, a critical care patient who comes in without diabetes may benefit from lower glucose control, whereas a patient with poorly controlled diabetes maybe could possibly do harm with lower targets for their glucose. So... We were discussing before the podcast started, we don't use the same antibiotic for every single bug. We we personalize the antibiotic therapy depending on the bug that's grown. And I think ultimately there's a case building for personalized glucose and insulin therapy depending on what group you fit into, potentially those without diabetes, potentially those with well-controlled diabetes. I mean, they might be in the same group. And then there are those with moderately controlled or poorly controlled diabetes where there is some data now uh, building that possibly higher glucose targets may result in, in better outcomes. Sure. And this is actually something that could be pretty easily achieved. Um, you mentioned in your article that maybe what people should do is get a hemoglobin A1C level as soon as these patients come in to get the clinician a better idea of which group they should be in, for example? Yeah, so I guess one of the limitations in our study is when we did it, collected the data in 2013, is that we had to send away for the glycated hemoglobin when patients were admitted, and it would usually take within 6 to 12 hours for the results to come back. There is now point-of-care HbA1c testing, uh, potentially when people come into the ICU or even emergency department, uh, you can do a finger prick and get an approximation of the glycated hemoglobin then and there. I guess the benefit of that is if you do have someone with a grossly elevated glycated hemoglobin, then whether or not they would benefit from slightly higher blood glucose targets. And and I guess the one thing that we've shown in this small study is that you know it appears that there is a trend towards fewer moderate to severe episodes of hypoglycemia and 
potential reduction in glycemic variability, which are both associated with harm in patients who are in the ICU. So, um, yeah, it appears to be fairly safe. But but as I said, single-centre pilot study, this is an exploratory study, further research needs to be done. I don't think you can extrapolate from a single-centre study to uh, patients worldwide. Certainly a multi-centre trial uh, with hundreds of patients need to be performed before you can think about um, implementing these sort of uh, treatment goals to, to your patients. It certainly sounds like you're an advocate for further research and study into this area and for perhaps uh, tailoring our approaches to various patient populations. What's, what's next for your group in terms of this topic? Yeah, so we started a multi-centre trial here in Australia and New Zealand um, where we've started to recruit patients amongst uh, a, bu- a bunch of ICUs in and around Australia and New Zealand, as I said, um, and we'll be looking at them for their HbA1Cs and comparing liberal to uh, standard care glucose control. Um, we're looking to admit sort of 450 patients in, in this multi-centre trial uh, and it'll be a randomised control trial and it'll compare, as I said, liberal glucose bugler controls to standard glucose care in patients with type 2 diabetes. And, and that's us. So that's currently underway in recruiting currently. Interestingly, I do know that there's another trial being done in France, I think, called the controlling trial, which is looking at individualised blood glucose control in the ICU. They're admitting patients to standard care versus individualised care, and the individualised care is dependent on the HbA1c on admission. So a higher HbA1c ends up having a higher blood glucose target, and I'll be interested to see the results of that. Um, so, yeah, there's a, so there's a couple of studies. We've only just started collecting data for our slightly larger multi-centre trial, but I will be interested to see that the controlling uh, study, I think they're aiming to enrol about 4,000 patients in, in 10 or so centres. Yeah, so I'll be keen to see the results of that. I'm not sure when that's going to come out, but, um, you know, I'll be watching that with interest. Yeah, that sounds, that sounds very interesting. I, I wanted to ask you a question about the uh, post-operative patient population. I uh, want to yes. give a nod to, my, to our surgeon colleagues who are very interested in reducing their... Uh, incidence of post-op uh, wound complications such as infections. In, in your study or in the data that you're aware of, how does a liberal approach toward um, glycemic control influence wound infections? Yeah, I guess the, the thought has always been that patients with higher blood glucose levels are a potential risk of, of wound infection. It was one thing that was difficult for us to uh, look at outcomes on. Um, I mean, we had post-surgical patients, but patients having cardiac surgery were excluded from our trial. There's actually some good evidence out there to suggest that patients post-op cardiothoracic surgery do better with, with tighter glucose control. So, so that they were excluded. Again, it goes back to the physiology behind uh, what's normal for these patients. If, is, if their normal blood glucose is around the 200 250, 280 milligrams per deciliter mark, and and we drive their blood glucose down to 110, 120, 130 milligrams per deciliter, then potentially those patients could suffer harm. And I guess we need to decide what's more important, potential for infection or potential for increased morbidity mortality with a, a relative hypoglycemia. As I stated, I think we need to look at more data for this to, to really have a, 
knuckle down on on whether or not there is an increased risk of, of wound infection or not. And I think that um, we, we're getting there with, with the studies upcoming. You know, we we tend to run people according to their normal physiology if possible. And in that respect, I guess if someone's sitting at home with a slightly higher blood glucose level, it would make sense to me to keep them high. The other thing, I guess, is is there a significant clinical difference of running someone with a with respect to wound infection between running someone with a blood glucose of 160, 170 milligram per deciliter versus 190 or 200 milligram per deciliter? Um, potentially, is there a difference in wound infection rates there? Because there there possibly might be a difference in or a reduction in harm in those patients with, with type two diabetes potentially. I think that would be a very good patient population to, to, to look at. Well, we'll look forward to uh, more results from your group as well as your uh, colleagues in this area. Thanks so much for uh, speaking with us about this. Uh, before we conclude, were there other points or other thoughts that you had that you wanted to share with the listeners? Yeah, I guess I guess ultimately I, I'd recommend anyone who's interested in it to read the paper itself. I guess... You know, there are strengths to the study. It's the first study of its kind. It's a positive study, a prospective comparison, differing peak blood glucose targets in patients with type 2 diabetes and, and chronic hypoglycemia. Uh, interestingly, I think it warrants further investigation. Of course, there are limitations. You know, as I said, it's a small pilot study, exploratory in nature, results in small sample sizes. Um, the study design limitations, you know, it, it would be good to randomise patients and, and run it in parallel between liberal and uh, standard arms, but it just wasn't possible in our, in our small unit. And there are, of course, limitations with the biomarkers and power of the study, but it, it's thought-provoking. I certainly wouldn't go away changing treatment goals in my intensive care unit based on this study, but at the very least, it should make people think that maybe what we've been doing for so long may not be a benefit. And and that's why we do these do these studies. That's why we do research, because we might be able to make a difference in, in the future and potentially a larger study might be able to show that. So, you know, at the very least, this small study provides evidence of feasibility and initial evidence of potential biological and clinical safety. Um, there might be a positive effect on hypoglycemia and glycemic variability, and I do think that additional prospective studies are warranted. Yes, that sounds great. Well, on that note, I think we'll uh, conclude this podcast. Uh, I would like to thank you, Dr. Carr, for joining us, and I'd like to thank all of our listeners. This concludes yet another edition of the iCritical Care podcast. Please check out our website at www.sccm.org backslash iCriticalCare for more information. For the iCritical Care podcast team, I'm Dr. Ludwig Lin. Attend the 47th Critical Care Congress to be held February 25th to 28th, 2018 in San Antonio, Texas, USA. The Society's Congress is the largest multi-professional critical care event of the year and features innovative learning experiences that encompass the full range of developments in critical care. Register at www.sccm.org congress. Ludwig Lenn, M.D. is an intensivist and anesthesiologist at Summit Alta Bates Medical Center in the Bay Area in Northern California and is a consulting professor at Stanford University where he teaches a seminar on the psychosocial and economic ramifications of critical illness. Dr. Lin did his medical training, anesthesia residency, and critical care medicine fellowship at the University of California, San Francisco. 
He has served as faculty at both Stanford University as well as the University of California, San Francisco, where he was a professor and the medical director of critical care at San Francisco General Hospital. He has interests in patient family communication as well as education. Being a SCCM podcast host reminds Dr. Lin of his undergraduate days as a news broadcaster for his college radio station, KZSU. The iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email iCriticalCare at sccm.org or info at sccm.org.